Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The races for seats in America's Senate will be just as pitched as the presidential contest. That's especially true in Alabama, which two years ago elected Doug Jones, the first Democratic senator in a quarter of a century. Our correspondent pays him a visit and says that his moderate ways hold a lesson for other Democrats. And air pollution levels in Delhi at last seem to be dropping. The thick smog was declared a public health emergency earlier this month. It's clear that poor air quality can shorten lives, but the danger is particularly acute for kids. First up, though. In the early days of the Internet, a philosophy grew up that it should be free, open, and democratic. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. You have no moral right to rule us, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement. We have true reason to fear. That was John Perry Barlow, founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which from 1990 called for civil liberties in the digital world, for the nascent internet to be borderless and unregulated. He was one of what came to be known as techno-libertarians. Their ideas gained considerable traction. In the new century, liberty will spread by cell phone and cable modem. In the past year, the number of internet addresses in China has more than quadrupled from 2 million to 9 million. Then-President Bill Clinton was speaking at Johns Hopkins University in 2000. Now, there's no question China has been trying to crack down on the Internet. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) That's sort of like trying to nail Jell-O to the wall. Then social media happened, and with that came optimism about the possibilities of a connected world. But now worries have mounted about how Facebook has changed and even distorted society and politics. In China, officials long ago demonstrated that nailing Jell-O to the wall was exactly what they planned to do. Now, other countries are increasingly willing to censor the Internet, sometimes to control free speech, sometimes to limit the perceived harms caused by social media. And as governments are more inclined to regulate, there can be headaches for the big tech companies implementing the rules across multiple countries. In Britain, the issue came to the fore when public health was deemed to be at risk. One example is uh, measles, which is an infectious disease. It kills around 110,000 people around the world every year. And three years ago, Britain was declared free of it. 
But that status was revoked earlier this year after around 1,000 people were diagnosed. And a lot of people say one reason is you get all these conspiracy theories online, people saying that, you know, measles vaccines cause autism. And we should just pause and say they don't. Please have them. Tim Cross is our technology editor. Britain's health minister, Matt Hancock, has said one reason he thinks this is happening is because of the pernicious influence of Facebook and and, and places like that, where these sort of conspiracy theories are discussed. He wants them to have a duty of care to their users, and part of that is not to spread this sort of harmful disinformation, which presumably means they would need to take steps to suppress it. And he said if they won't do this voluntarily, he will consider changing the law uh, to make them do it. And Britain is is not alone in tussling with these kinds of public health versus free speech concerns as, as regards the internet. No, and part of the problem is that every country has sort of slightly different priorities. So there was a famous case from early on in the internet in the year 2000, I think it was, when Yahoo, which our older listeners may remember, they got into trouble in France because they were hosting auctions of Nazi memorabilia and it ended up in court. And Yahoo essentially said, well, you know, we're an American company, all of our infrastructure is in the US, so French law doesn't apply. And they lost. They lost both in the French court and then in a later case in in the US. So the problem is that, you know, lots of people say, yes, we should we should regulate speech. There shouldn't be an absolute right to free speech. But no one can really agree on on what that means in practice. Well, how have things progressed around the world since that that case in France? Well, I guess the the big standout is China, right? It's never drunk the free internet Kool-Aid. It's it's heavily sensitive right from the beginning. So, uh, you know, we have the Great Firewall. Loads of Western companies don't operate there at all, and their websites are blocked. So that that's sort of at one extreme, but it's it's an extreme that covers you know a fifth of the people in in the world. And and then you've had so again in in Britain, for instance, we have uh, a system that was set up to try to block access to child pornography. And then over the years, that's evolved. So it's now also been used to try and block access to things like copyright infringement, which a lot of people, I think, would say, you know, is a much less serious crime. There's another ruling that's that's called the right to be forgotten, which again originates in France, which says that under some circumstances, you can force search engines to remove details about certain individuals if they're, they're no longer relevant or they you know, uh, fall foul of other, other parts of the law. So with big examples uh, like China aside, which has a fairly, you know, clear cut you know, yeah. total control, there seems to be an increasing number of sort of country-based sets of rules that ensure that what you see in one country is not the same as the next. And, and this seems to be growing, a, a sort of growing fragmentation of the internet. Yeah, so so Singapore recently, for example, passed the uh, Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulations Act, which is it sort of presented as an anti, anti-fake news bill. And that puts various requirements on everyone from, you know, ISPs to social networks to not post or to quickly take down anything which is regarded as fake news. And as you can imagine, you know, Singapore has a fairly bossy government and it has quite an expansive definition of, of what falls under that law. So that must look like an entirely different uh, pragmatic and, and regulatory regime for the tech giants like the Facebooks and the Twitters and WhatsApp and what have you to, to navigate all of these international rules. Yeah, I, I think speaking generally, in the past there was this assumption that if you were a tech company like that, you could operate internationally without too much friction. You didn't need too many people to scale your business across countries. And I think increasingly that's no longer the case. And so one analogy that was given to me was with big banks, which you know they also operate internationally. They're hedged about with sort of different rules that apply in all the different territories they, they operate in. And the consequence of that is they need big compliance departments. So the analogy for the tech companies is they will need to hire more and more people to keep an eye on the content that's posted to their platforms. So the, the tech giants then are broadly against being regulated in this way? I think it depends, actually. I think a lot of them have realized which way the wind is blowing. And, uh, you know, the the sort of old system of self-regulation attracts a lot of political heat to them. 
Facebook and, and, and some of the others have said, actually, we, we welcome regulation. I mean, the, the, the tech companies would argue that it's not for them to set rules. It's for countries' governments to set rules, and their job is to abide by the rules. And I think there's, you know, that's a, a fair enough point. It also has this welcome side effect, shall we say, that if you need a big compliance department to operate as an international platform, then if you're Facebook or Twitter or Google or somebody, if you're a big incumbent company already, then then you can afford to absorb that cost. If you're a scrappy startup, it's another hurdle that you have to jump before you can you can compete with the big guys. Do you think that the way things are going now is kind of healthy for the broad tech ecosystem? Is there is there a good way to do this if basically the internet will be crimped in different ways in different territories? So countries do have the power to do this and they aren't, you know, worried about using it. Having said that, you know, th- th- there are ways you could try to limit the the impact. People have said to me, you have these disputes between the US and the EU on, on things like privacy and so on. But, you know, really, these are micro disputes within a sort of broader tradition of support for free speech. So you might be able to see a world, not immediately, but maybe maybe in a few years or a few decades, where, again, I guess like with banking regulation, we try and have some sort of supranational rules that apply. So um, the EU, for instance, is keen to centralise all this kind of regulation in Brussels to the extent that you think the internet should be this sort of transnational space where people can talk to each other. It's also good good there. So you, maybe you could see you know, countries working together um, to limit the fragmentation. But I think the fact of fragmentation, I mean, it already exists, and I think it's only going to get, get more severe. Thank you very much for your time, Tim. Thanks, Jason. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The Democratic Party has been busily investigating President Donald Trump. This is about the facts. This is about the Constitution of the United States. But they have other worries ahead of next year's elections, like deciding their own presidential candidate and building a strategy to win a majority in the Senate. Much more than in previous election run-ups, there seems to be a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Presidential candidates are fanning out to the left, with standard bearers Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren offering progressive policies on health care, tax, and education. I believe it is time in America to make a new investment in public education. And I got a plan for that. Some worry about how that leftward shift weakens Democrats' chances in battleground states. Last weekend, at a private fundraising dinner, former President Barack Obama warned that American voters don't want the party to tear down the system and remake it. But one Democrat has shown that, despite progressive politics, it's still possible to win over Republican strongholds. In 2017, Doug Jones became Alabama's first Democratic senator in a quarter of a century. He was helped by running against a scandal-plagued firebrand named Roy Moore, but also by his willingness to reach across the aisle. I think that Jones's moderation, his sensitivity, 
to voters his efforts to sort of appeal beyond tribal affiliation is a lesson to Democrats, which is particularly useful at this primary time. James Astle is The Economist's Washington bureau chief. I spent a day with Senator Jones in Birmingham, Alabama. I joined him and his wife at a crowded, busy, extremely popular southern restaurant on the edge of Birmingham. It was very atmospheric. His birthday was the other day. I hadn't called him. I got a call. He's up in Ireland. And obviously a place that he, he loves. And we took our seats in this, this sort of canteen environment and ate fried catfish and turnip tops. Folks from all walks. I mean, it's, a, it's as much a buffet as what you just went through. And chatted about Alabama and politics nationally and in the state. So what's the general set of values then that he's espousing? Jones is a progressive. He's not the sort of traditional blue dog Democrat who tries to downplay his social liberalism. He's unapologetically pro-abortion rights. He's pro-gay rights. He has a very outspoken, almost activist, gay son. Guns, gay marriage. Guns guns and gay marriage are, are, are not near as big an issue these days. Uh, there, there are segments and yet at the same time, he preaches a message that that kind of principled leftist position should not be mutually exclusive with a reaching out to conservatives, uh, an effort to find pragmatic places of agreement. He will say to a, a conservative voter, OK, you, we're not going to agree on, on everything. You may hate my position on abortion rights, but why don't we talk about some of the wider healthcare issues in the state, which, if addressed properly, might lead to a steep drop in demand for abortion services. Re- Republicans have done a really good job of dividing people and putting people into separate camps on pretty much ex- extreme ideas. And so part of my what I've got to do is to say, look, You may not agree with me on everything involving this social issue, but there's probably a lot of things you can't agree with me on, and let's focus on those. He is very much looking for common ground whilst not downplaying or backpedaling his essential progressive principles. That's an unusual combination. And what about the impeachment inquiry and and how it affects people like Mr. Jones, who are coming up on these races and, and have to talk to their constituents about what should be done in Washington? So the whole impeachment scenario is a nightmare for Doug Jones and other moderate Democrats because it is essentially polarizing. It forces people to take partisan positions. Are you for or are you against the president? That is precisely the kind of dynamic that he is seeking to avoid. He wants to localize politics and talk to people about issues, especially local issues, problem solving, trying to reach beyond party. And the very notion of impeaching the president cuts against that in a very brutal way. Politics is like physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And if you get those folks getting entrenched here, you're going to get folks getting entrenched there, and vice versa. And so we can't govern like that. And what did your time with Mr. Jones tell you about perhaps the, the wider strategy of, of Democrats uh, for, for 2020 who might find themselves in a similar situation? Is he, is he an example to be followed or, or something of an anomaly, do you think? Doug Jones is an anomaly because of the almost bizarre circumstances of his 
election. He was elected in a special election because the former Republican Senator Jeff Sessions had taken the job of Attorney General. So the seat suddenly became available. An extremely unfit Republican candidate won their primary. Roy Moore, who has extreme right-wing religious views and also was accused of having a history of pursuing teenage girls for sex. Doug Jones had a tremendous advantage running as a moderate Democrat in that Senate race. But Mr. Moore denied all those allegations. Do you think that Mr. Jones's election victory was just due to that specific circumstance? Do you think he has a chance of winning in the upcoming election? What's most remarkable about Doug Jones is the fact that he has these unashamed liberal principles, even as he's a sort of pragmatic searcher for common ground. And I think there is some fairly compelling evidence that Alabama, like most of the country, is moving towards those positions, even if it may not get there in time for Doug Jones's re-election prospects. Alabama, like the rest of America, is changing. Where middle-class, somewhat liberal, college-educated Alabamans would expect to leave the state for opportunity and they might have thought uh, more sympathetic politics elsewhere, they're now increasingly staying. There is a cultural shift in the state. There is a conscious effort to grapple with its racist past. And I think that Doug Jones's candidacy in itself is a sign of change. He didn't only win the votes of black Democrats and a few moderate Republicans who couldn't stand his opponent. He also attracted more middle-class, liberal, suburban, Alabaman votes than I think people had imagined existed. The state is changing. The South is changing, albeit perhaps not as fast as... Doug Jones needs it to. So does all of this, including the impeachment inquiry, mean that the odds are really stacked against Doug Jones? I think that the impeachment saga has just underlined how difficult it will be for him to retain his seat at a general election next year and how difficult it is more broadly for Democratic moderates to cling on at a time when the country is being polarized so starkly by President Trump and at the same time when their own party wants to push the conversation to the left, to left-wing policies which simply don't fly in conservative states like Alabama. So they are hanging on by their fingertips, these moderate Democrats, and yet they are essential to a democratic strategy that has an ambition to control the Senate as well as the House and the presidency and therefore to actually pass any democratic policies, left-wing or otherwise. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. November is often a bad month for air pollution in Delhi. Farmers have burnt the remnants of rice crops to clear land for wheat, and Hindus celebrate Diwali with firecrackers. Earlier this month, though, pollution nearly brought the city to a standstill. The concentration of the finest particles in the air was a hundred times the limit the World Health Organization recommends for long-term exposure, as bad as smoking 50 cigarettes a day. It isn't just a problem for Delhi. Air quality is a concern for cities around the world. And while it's dangerous for everyone who lives in them, it's particularly so for kids. Globally, more than 90% of children under 15 breathe air that the World Health Organization deems puts their health at serious risk. Sarah Donnellan writes about international news for The Economist. 
And in the last year alone, we've seen lots of places from Thailand and Malaysia to Mexico and America cancel school days because of smog. Why is this specifically a problem for kids? Researchers warn that kids are especially susceptible to dirty air for a few reasons. First of all, their lungs are still developing. Second of all, they breathe faster than adults, so they take in more pollution relative to their body weight. And third, they're usually shorter. And so one study found that on school runs in Britain, because kids were closer to exhaust pipes, they took in 30% more pollutants on those school runs than the adults accompanying them did. And so does pollution have sort of disproportionate effects on kids then? Yeah, I mean, the telltale signs in people who have experienced air pollution are fainting and vomiting and labored breathing, eyes burning. In Malaysia over the summer, more than 100 kids went to the hospital with similar symptoms for the same reason, the air had poisoned them. Anyone can have those sorts of symptoms, but kids especially can develop asthma at a young age. And it's important to note that there's a socioeconomic factor in this. So poor kids often go to school closer to busy roads and therefore are exposed to more pollutants. But not all of the effects of air pollution are even visible. Increasingly, we're seeing research that suggests there are serious cognitive development and mental health risks of air pollution. In Israel, in 2014, researchers found that exposure to pollution had a negative effect on kids' performance on exams. And we've seen some really troubling research out of the American Midwest this year that an increase in pollution was associated with an increased number of visits by kids to psychiatric hospitals with reports of anxiety and suicidal thoughts. And so so what's to be done to, to mitigate the risk to these kids? In the short term, the reason that so many places are closing down schools is that the most exposure tends to happen in the period when kids are traveling to school and back and also playing outside. So closing schools is an imperfect short-term solution. In Britain, campaigners are trying to stem the damage by encouraging school pickup and drop-offs by foot or bicycle rather than by car. As part of one initiative in Sheffield, a school has built what's called a green wall around its playground, which means a grassy hedge that filters pollution coming from the road before it reaches the kids playing outside. Much bigger change is needed to deal with this problem in the longer term. By 2060, the OECD warns outdoor air pollution could reduce global GDP by 1%, mostly from lower worker productivity and lost working days, as well as loss in agricultural yield and higher health costs. And so the costs of inaction are high, not only for individual kids who suffer these physical and mental health problems that we've discussed, but also for the world that they'll be left when they grow up. Thank you very much for your time, Sarah. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radiooffer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope. 
with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.